X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It's Tuesday, June 16th. Today, back in the day, June 16th, 1969, Governor Tom McCall signed the bill creating the Department of Environmental Quality and the Environmental Quality Commission. That's the DEQ and the EQC. The Oregon DEQ administers and enforces environmental laws pertaining to the air, soil, and surface and groundwater. Also serves as the Environmental Protection Agency's delegate in ensuring compliance with federal laws like the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act. Also today, back in the day, June 16th, 2015, TV personality and inherited real estate mogul Donald Trump launched his campaign for the Republican nomination for the U.S. President of the United States. 80 years before that, back in the day, June 15, 1935, the United States Congress accepted FDR's New Deal. Today on The Local, we'll start with your quick six news headlines. We'll take a look at running for office during COVID-19 with political consultant Paige Richardson. And we'll ask Paige about the text messages a lot of us were getting during the campaign. And DJ Ambush will share an interview with two local protesters with first-hand experiences on the streets in Portland. And first up, it is today's quick six local rundown. Burgerville is copying Starbucks, reversing their decision to ban Black Lives Matter buttons. Following backlash from the Burgerville Workers Union, the Vancouver-based fast food chain will now allow workers to wear buttons and clothing that support the Black Lives Matter movement, so long as they're produced and approved by the company itself. Here's the company's statement, and I'm quoting, We encourage our employees to express their support for the BLM movement and are working as quickly as possible to develop accessories, buttons, T-shirts, stickers, etc. that align to our uniform standards and demonstrate our commitments and our solidarity. The move comes after the Burgerville Workers Union said on Thursday that it planned to respond The move comes after the Burgerville Workers Union said on Thursday they planned on taking the fast food chain to court. Managers had threatened to discipline workers for wearing union buttons saying Black Lives Matter and justice for George Floyd. Union members have criticized the move as insufficient, maybe even disingenuous, as the buttons have the Burgerville logo. In a statement, the union said it will, and I am quoting, continue to fight for the right of Burgerville workers to wear buttons declaring that Black Lives Matter without additional branding and hashtag. Remember that Starbucks had a similar move where they barred Black Lives Matter language in their stores as political and then reversed it within a day or two. What goes up might come down. The Portland Police Bureau is going to remove the fence around the Justice Center and the Thomas Jefferson statue at Jefferson High School has come down. On Sunday evening, protesters convened at Jefferson High School before moving on to Alberta Park. The iconic statue of Thomas Jefferson served as a backdrop for the speaker dais launching the evening. The statue had recently been tagged with graffiti saying slave owner. When protesters returned after the march, the statue had been pulled down. On Monday afternoon, the Portland Police Bureau announced that they will be taking down the fence around the Justice Center. The fence has been a point of altercation between protesters and the Bureau over recent weeks. It even has its own Twitter handle, at Portland Fence. Here's a police bureau quote from their press release. We are removing the fence to show our willingness to have dialogue and peaceful communication towards starting to heal our community. We are open and listening to discussions of how the community envisions its police serve them in the future. Our hope is that the nightly violence and destruction around the Justice Center will stop and the focus can be directed toward peaceful conversation. Our hope is that the nightly violence and destruction around the Justice Center will stop and the focus can be directed toward peaceful conversation. The police have not said when the fence will be disassembled or when peaceful conversations will begin. Oregon's recent surge of new confirmed coronavirus cases hit a new high on Monday. And this time, the increase is being driven by a spike in cases from a rural community in eastern Oregon. Health officials reported 184 new confirmed and presumptive cases. That brings the state up to 5,820. 
and four more deaths, bringing the state's total deaths to 180. All four of those were in Clackamas County. Monday's case numbers mark the highest daily count yet since the onset of the pandemic. More than half of those new cases are from Union County. Its 99 cases are the most any county has had in a single day. Its population is only 26,000. The county's new total case number? 121. That's an increase about 400% in a single day. According to county health officials, a number of those cases have been associated with Lighthouse United Pentecostal Church in LaGrande. The church recently hosted a testing clinic. Officials say the uptick could be due to the increase in testing and the community spread. They believe it's not entirely from that church community. Meanwhile, the latest available data shows Washington State has tallied 1,217 deaths related to COVID-19 and 25,834 confirmed cases. OSU, Oregon State University, says it will expand its study of COVID-19 in Newport. Researchers and local public health officials will conduct two days of community sampling in Newport over the weekend. The expansion of the team-based rapid assessment of community-level coronavirus epidemics, or TRACE, comes after more than 120 cases were found at Pacific Seafoods Plant. That's in Newport. The study team will help with contact tracing for any positive tests they find during the effort to canvas the community. OSU launched the program back in April. We talked about it here. To track the outbreak's prevalence in Corvallis, it has since expanded to other communities. Washington state Democrats are pondering tax increases in face of a bleak budget outlook. Washington state lawmakers are bracing for the revenue forecast on Wednesday that might show a $10 billion drop in state tax collections over the next three years. Already, a preliminary forecast in May predicted state revenues would crater by $7 billion over that time period, and now the official forecast is expected to be worse. The two-year budget is $53 billion in Washington. But unlike during the Great Recession, when the budget was largely balanced through spending cuts, this time around, Democrats are signaling that tax increases are almost certainly part of any solution. This time, it's also easier for Democrats and their allies to make taxes part of the equation because the Washington legislature no longer requires a two-thirds supermajority to pass revenue-related bills. In 2013, the Washington State Supreme Court ruled that that voter-approved threshold was unconstitutional. So now a simple majority could balance the budget with a combination of tax increases as well as budget cuts. Most of the talks are happening behind closed doors, but there have been some clues about what might be considered. Washington residents have received calls from a polling firm asking about three potential revenue options. One would be a 7% capital gains tax on people making more than $150,000 a year. Also, a $10 billion bond to address COVID-19-related losses and a 1% tax on big businesses. Instituting capital gains tax in Washington state could impact some Oregonians. Many Oregon accountants and financial managers will advise wealthy Oregonians to move to Washington state just prior to a liquidity event, like selling their business to avoid Oregon's capital gains taxes. Another factor about Washington's budget, due to a constitutionally protected rainy day fund and a four-year balanced budget requirement, Washington is in better shape than many states. They have a financial buffer of nearly $3 billion in restricted and unrestricted state reserves. In other local economic news, Pac announced that they will be closing most of their restaurants. They said they're hoping to save some money so they can reopen the main Pac when things open back up. Mitch Greenlick has officially been replaced. Portland Democrat Dr. Maxine Dexter was sworn into office on Sunday to serve out the remaining months of Mitch Greenlick's term. Dexter will be representing Oregon House District 33, centered around northwest Portland. She took the oath of office in a private outdoor ceremony officiated by Oregon Supreme Court Justice Adrian Nelson. Dexter won the Democratic primary for the seat in May. You can listen to her interview on xraypod.com. We had a good chunk of it in a past episode of The Local. She does now have to face Republican forestry consultant Dick Quarter in the November general election. 
That district are strongly Democratic, so the odds are that Dr. Dexter will continue to be Representative Dexter into the next session. Dexter is one of two Oregon doctors who won Democratic legislative primaries this year. She's a pulmonologist and critical care physician at Kaiser Permanente. Mitch Greenlick, who represented the district for 17 years, died in May at the age of 85. The way that appointment happens is the Democratic precinct people in the relevant precincts select some nominees. You see the precinct ballot in your ballot. You might wonder what it is. Then after there are a set of names, three to five names, sent to the county commission, the county commissions get to choose. So Dexter was ultimately chosen to serve out the remainder of Greenlick's term by the Washington County Commission and the Multnomah County Commission. Some good news from fans of equality. It is national news. The Supreme Court has ruled that workers cannot be fired for being gay or transgender. The U.S. Supreme Court declared on Monday that the historic Civil Rights Act of 1964 does protect LGBTQ workers from workplace discrimination. It was a 63 vote with conservatives Chief Justice John Roberts and Neil Gorsuch joining the four liberal justices in the majority. Gorsuch's opinion as a strict constructionist said the law's ban on job discrimination on the basis of sex can be read to forbid bias against employees based on their sexual orientation or gender identity. And how might that impact human beings here in Oregon? Well, we can just look to the examples of the plaintiffs in that very Supreme Court case. Gerald Bostick was a child welfare coordinator. He contended that he was fired after he joined a gay recreational softball league. Amy Stevens presented as a man for six years while working as a funeral director. She decided to come out at work as a transgender woman. Two weeks after giving a letter to her boss, she was fired. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Here's Emily Gilliland with what's next. Thanks, Jefferson. Paige Richardson has worked on local campaigns for years, but campaigning during a global pandemic is, as well, a new challenge. Jefferson and Paige reflect on the May primary election and discuss what has changed, what stayed the same, and where innovation has created a new normal. On the line right now, we have Paige Richardson, a longtime political consultant, helping lots of Portland area campaigns and candidates over the years. What is it like to work on a campaign during the 2020 election year that coincides with a global pandemic? What are the realities of runoff campaigns? What is the new normal or the new whatever we want to call it if we don't want to call it normal? Paige, good morning. Good morning, Jefferson. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. It's been a long time. How are you? First of all, as a human being, how are you doing? How are you coping? What's cracking in your world? I appreciate that. I'm feeling very, very fortunate. Uh, my family and, and friend circle has been doing okay. Um, and then most of the folks I've been working with as well uh, have also been surviving. Some people have been sick, but we haven't lost anybody yet. And I, uh, you know, that's a gift. We have housing and food and clothing, and and I spend every day being almost all day long being grateful for that in a world in the world we're in right now. What campaigns are you working on, or if anything sunsetted after the primary? What campaigns were you working on up to the primary? Sure, uh, in the primary, I worked with um, let's see, Carmen Rubio, who most folks will know. Um, one one with a unanimous vote, not quite unanimous, but <laughs> yes. Dr. Maxine Dexter, who uh, just was sworn in yesterday to replace the late, great Mitch Greenlick, and that was a four- or five-way primary, so that was a tough battle. And then uh, Dr. Lisa Reynolds, uh, who is now in the seat that Jennifer Williamson had, that was also hard-fought. And uh, then Ricky Ruiz, another contested primary out east. Uh, to replace Carla Peluso, and Con Pham, 
uh, in Alyssa Kenny Geyer's uh, former seat, House District 46, um, and went five for five on those. Very happy about that. So, uh, as you say, Carmen was, um, you know, Carmen's been around so long and has built up such a great um, network of uh, supporters, colleagues, community members that people were just excited that she was willing to run at this time. So, um, uh, but she did have a wonderful challenger. I want to give a shout out to Candace. Uh, Avalos, who stepped up to run, and I think we should keep an eye on Candace in the future. She's a great leader. Uh, she's working on police reform, has been previously, so also uh, send her good thoughts and good energy as we try to turn the corner on something that has plagued our country for hundreds of years. So let's get into what these campaigns are looking like. How, what is the primary method that candidates are using to get that and in front of voters during social distancing to the degree that any of that is different. Presumably you're still doing mail and maybe TV, but what's most different? This is, I mean, let's start with what happened, you know, in the beginning. And as, as, as you and most of your listeners know, humans are not great when it comes to that massive uh, change, right? So in the beginning, everybody just freaked out, like, oh my God, what's, you know, how are we going to possibly do this? And then everybody took a breath and realized the only tools that are taken away from us were door-to-door campaigning. Now, for sure, you know this, the best way for any candidate to build a relationship with a voter and to secure a vote is an in-person contact, and at the door is a, a wonderful traditional way to do that, and so that did stop. But we had every other tool available to us, and some of the opportunity that it presented was that more people had suddenly had time on their hands and needed to have something productive to do at a time when it's, particularly in the beginning of this we were you know it was a scary a scary moment for several weeks there so uh, volunteerism in some cases was much higher than it had been previously and uh, and so then you know we just pursued those other tactics so a lot of phones, a lot of texting, um, definitely direct mail. I still believe in direct mail because it goes to, it goes right to the voter's house, and uh, you can use multiple pieces to tell a story. In addition to not doing door-to-door campaigns, there weren't the opportunity, there wasn't the opportunity to do in-person debates, which is less of a thing in state legislative primaries typically, and also wasn't a chance to do in-person house parties. There was the opportunity now to do more video conferencing, Zoom, which is the program most people use. Uh, and we're finding, or at least in grappling with the question as an organization, of how we might actually be more connected to some of our hosts, some of our DJs, some of our listener community, even more closely connected because more people are used to participating participating in that. How did that overlap with political campaigns you were working on? Was there a lot of use of video conferencing in terms of fundraising or planning or volunteer engagement? Huge. And thank you for bringing that up. I was taking notes before we started, and um, that was the last thing that I I wanted to cover. Um, Before we go down this road, I just want to point out to your listeners, Zoom uh, just caved to the Chinese government and shut down the account of a Chinese dissident here in the U.S., a Mm. uh, gentleman who was one of the organizers of Tiananmen Square, the democracy movement Mm. there, 
and they shut down his Zoom account because he was talking, he was having a gathering to commemorate the anniversary of Tiananmen Square. So I encourage everybody to find a different platform or to pressure Zoom to not cave to uh, these sort of, uh, you know, dictatorial fascist governments. So thank you for that, uh, for allowing me to do that. Now, back to campaigning digitally. That was one of the other um, amazing tools that we did have. Uh, Again, you couldn't have done this two years ago. And so this is brand new. You can get hundreds of people now on a Zoom call. And uh, it's like a large conference call, except there's video. And there's there's some sort of good news, bad news. Everybody had, um, I almost prefer the phone uh, uh, feature, but in some cases, the video conference is better because you can see folks. And um, between 60, I think it's like 62 and 90 some percent of communication is nonverbal. So when you can't see a person, you know, we we don't feel like we're completing the communication. Humans want to see the other person's face and body language. And so that's helpful. The other thing, though, is everybody had to get used to that, right? So um, there are a bunch of hilarious stories about people who didn't understand where the cameras were on either their computers or their phones and, um, you know, later, you know, having to give people either camera placement tips or grooming tips about their nose hairs, for example. Um, And... Um, not, we are not that, used to having this many close-ups. We have a lot more no, close-ups now. We are not. We are not. And I personally, um, I go on the Zoom calls, but I don't use my camera because I'm, you know, I'm ADD anyway. And so having that many images, including looking at my own, uh, like, whoa, is what's my hair doing? Right? Like I can easily scroll. So I don't turn on my own camera except for a moment to say hello, because it's a, a huge distraction. And so, but there is a bonus. I'm not, I'm not, there is a bonus because you can get that many folks on. You can have, you can't really have a true debate though. And I'm really glad you, you brought up debates. Not great in a Zoom function because the audience can't jump in as they normally would. You can't, you don't have the feel of the room. You have to allow, you know, you have to be very clear one person at a time, that kind of that kind of interaction that we that is livelier and that is real cannot happen on a Zoom call. What it is great for, though, it is a good replacement for house parties, although I'm not saying we should all go digital um, for the rest of our lives. Please, no. Let's get, you know, as soon as it's safe to be back um, in the same rooms with each other, that is a, is a much better way to do it. But it did allow for fundraising via Zoom, um, uh, uh, field meetings, campaign meetings via Zoom. Uh, I would I routinely talk to people that were on, oh, I don't know, six to eight hours of Zoom calls a day. And I, I think that's, you know, that's too much. It's the same like our children right now um, who are uh, all day long on tablets. It's, it's not healthy. The other thing that it does is, um, you know, we're all locked in front of the desk. So it is a good replacement, but um, please, let's. Um, we're all looking forward to being able to get back to inviting people over to our houses and to being out in community with each other. But it 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 is working. You're going to see it again, by the way. I think we're going to see a digital convention yeah. from the Democrats. I don't think we're going to see anything in person. I've I noticed that the uh, uh, host committee has stopped raising money. 
up there in Minnesota, in Minneapolis. And so um, the rumor is we're moving towards a digital convention. We're going to have much more of a digital campaign on the Democratic side. Um, uh, we, we've already seen that the uh, other side is, is getting ready to host rallies as soon as next week. Um, but I think Democrats will um, follow uh, science and medical recommendations and and keep trying each to, other safe. Trying to kill their supporters. Paige Richardson, who yeah. is a, <laughs> Paige Richardson, local political consultant, thank you so much for spending the time with us and giving us an inside look at what's happening in the campaigns. I hope we can do this again soon. Happy to, Jefferson. Everybody be safe out there. Take care. Talk to you soon. Be well. Monday marked the 18th day of protesting in Portland. Here is DJ Ambush with perspectives from two people who have been marching in the streets. This interview was recorded on June 7th. Each of us who has joined has a story. Here are two. So this will be the first time that um, we've had the opportunity to give our listeners an idea of what is happening on the front lines. Uh, I think up until this point, you know, they've relied on network news. They've relied on Facebook. They've relied on Instagram. They've relied on friends and family that participated in possibly some of the most joyous and passive ways, you know, available to them. And because there are things that are happening, there are some changes that are taking place. Recently, we just found out that um, the police department or um, uh, officers that were in public schools have been removed. PPS has, you know, made that move, which is huge. It's huge. It's a first step. You guys are out there every single day. And I think it's important that people understand that there's a different atmosphere once it gets dark. There's a different atmosphere once the cameras go away and those red and blue lights come on. So I wanted to use this as an opportunity, as a platform to let people know what it is that's happening. Um, there is no name. There's no names that will be given throughout this conversation. Uh, there is no overarching um, organization that you guys represent. This is just concerned humans that have chosen to take, take action. So um, I got a couple of questions. Uh, first and foremost, you know, why? Why are you involved? Uh, the one thing I think we do, you guys have given me permission to communicate, is that you are transplants. You are not Portland natives. So why is it so important that you're involved? Um, I would say for me, um, I'm involved simply because I'm black and I, I care. Uh, I care about staying alive. I care about other black folks staying alive. Um, I care about black survival. I care about black people living happily. Um, so not only, I guess, surviving, um, but also thriving. And so with that care, um, that is what brings me to the streets. Um, and it's literally that. I think that since we are fighting such a global issue, um, like this is anti-blackness is an issue everywhere. Police brutality is an issue nearly everywhere. Um, and it's why we see such an international uh, response and outcry. Uh, for me, all I have to do is just be black and care enough and love my people enough. So that's literally what brings me to the streets. I would be in literally any streets um, that I was that I'm living in 
at any time that this um, t this would take place. So it's it's more to me about the movement, the issue, um, and fighting for my people, no matter where I am, no matter where I am. Yeah. Uh, I would say for me personally, it's um, seeing what happened in Charlottesville in 2017 and seeing how the white supremacists were able to mobilize and organize and they were so ready to go. It was kind of like at that moment I realized that <clears throat> it's not uh, you know, a, little, a local town issue, it's a systematic issue. These people are in every state. So the same way that they're organized and ready to go, it makes me feel like I need to do the same for myself. So that's partly why I'm, you know, protesting every day because I realize it's not enough to just, you know, be anti-racist, whatever it may be, but you need to, like, put your body there. You know, there needs to be bodies that counter this thing. Okay. What have the police interactions been like? I've seen everything from a wide range of them just holding formation. I've seen them kneeling. Uh, I say that with the disdain that I hope the listeners are hearing. I'm trying to communicate that disdain. It's a little too late for that. Um, what has been, what has the police interaction been like for you when, you know, after nightfall? Um, honestly, the police, I feel like they're using this as a blood sport. They're enjoying themselves out there. They spend all day, they have their you know uniforms on, they take pictures with us, kneel, they do all sorts of everything. But as soon as it starts getting down, you can see it in their eyes, these guys are ready, they're, they're anticipating it. They have their gear on, they're excited to go, they're hunting us down. Like last night, it felt like we were a bunch of sheep being you know shepherded by you know basically like a dog or something just running around and you go left and you see them and they're not even necessarily trying to engage you but it's the fear factor so when you see a line of police cruisers coming down at you and they're throwing tear gas and everything they're you know blaring go home this and that that terrifies you so it's really just like an intimidation game that they're playing with us i also i also think that it's like kind of yeah again reiterating is that i think it's really that moment where a lot of police officers are like, you know, I get to have my call of duty moment. Um, I get to stand wow. on my, my power. Um, I get to also uh, literally enact force on other people mm -hmm. um, and be backed by that, by entire justice system all the way up to my um, president. And so that's a lot of power that you get to exercise on a Tuesday night or a Wednesday night. Right. Um, and in, you know, just regular old streets and on taxpaying citizens. And even if they're not, you know, we can go into that whole thing. But these are people that you are supposed to protect. And it's ultimately um, the people who are being threatened are the ones who, you know, are in need of protection. Uh, but they're being threatened by those who are supposed to be protecting them. So it's literally standing witness to that um, and literally seeing the issue that we're having with our justice system is terrible. So I apologize for uh, any repetition, but I want to make I want to be crystal clear about this. What you're basically saying is there are cops, law enforcement officers that we'll see throughout the day posing in photos, interacting, you know, pretending as if they understand the movement and understand why you're there and will allow peaceful protests. And these very same officers, once it's nightfall, they're running around like Call of Duty, like they're in a Great. film and they're just having a good time at your expense, making they, life dangerous. They Absolutely. use any justification they can. They'll say, stop throwing bottles of water at us. Don't throw, you know, your, uh, last time was apple seed. 
And you're telling me you have full riot gear on. You have a weapon. You have batons. You have a shield. And a water bottle comes at you. And now all of a sudden, you guys are taking your guns out and throwing you know, ammunition to a live crowd. And it's like, it just doesn't make sense. The force that they use every single night versus what they're receiving, it's like, you know, you're throwing pebbles at a bulletproof glass. And it's like, they're just, just overpowering us. Um, when we were having a discussion earlier prior to the recording, there was a term that I just recently became aware of two or three days ago, kettling. Um, and it may not even involve that, but what would you say have been uh, one of the scariest or frightening moments for you up until this point? For me, it was last night um, being separated from my girlfriend. Um, I was deeply frightened. Uh, we were walking together hand in hand. Uh, and literally, that is that is what the, the, the protests turned into. We started to march in the streets. So once again, this is not looting. This is not rioting. This is literally marching through the streets. Um, just like you all have seen, some of you have seen Dr. Martin Luther King do, right? Right. Um, and so we're marching through the streets, and then there's tear gas being thrown at us, a lot of, a lot of loud banging sounds, which I'm personally very sensitive to. Um, and so the next thing I know, I, we lose grip of each other um and i have no clue where she's run off to i dive into the closest parking lot um and i am frightened out of my mind and i find like three other um black individuals there um and i cry i I literally beg them like can i come hide with you because there are police literally chasing folks through, through the streets and uh me uh, running with my identity being what it is, I'm like, I need shelter. And so um, they're like, come, come, like, you can come, just stand behind us and, you know, we'll, we'll try our best. And there's n- literally nothing shielding us. We have nothing to hide behind. And we realize all we can do is crouch there and hope that they don't see us and they're walking through. Um, and honestly, to be, I hate to say it like this, but I think that the only reason why they couldn't see us is because we were black. And it was the first time I felt like that was an advantage. We were black and we were wearing all all black. Um, And we were in the night. And, you know, getting home, I had to sit with that that conundrum, that that irony, um, that my blackness may have been the thing that saved me, but that my blackness was also the thing that sent me running out into the streets. My blackness was also the thing that sent me really in deep need of shelter. Um, and my girlfriend is brown. She's Mexican. And so she's running through the streets, and I had no clue how to find her. Um, all I know is that tear gas is being thrown at her. I know that they had her and a bunch of other folks up against the Portland Art Museum um, with their hands up in the air, and they were throwing flashbangs at their feet, um, pointing guns at them. Um, and it is a miracle that she made it home safely that night. It is a miracle that I made it home safely that night. It could have ended literally any way, and the police could have you know, changed the narrative to whatever. You know, those were rioters in the street. Those were looters. Those were so-and-so. They, you know, and uh, that, that, I will say, like, last night was probably my, my most frightening, frightening night. <sighs> Well, uh, man, that was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> that was a lot. Um, I'm not out there. Uh, someone asked me why I wasn't out there. I'm old. My knees aren't the same yep. as they used to be. I don't want to be out. I don't want to fall. I don't want to fall when we have to run and you got to turn around and be like, we got to stop and pick up yeah. ambush. And then you guys get hurt as, as a result of that. And then I don't want to create any movie moments where it's like, just run, leave me a bag, leave me alone. Yeah. Uh, you know. But... <laughs> Honestly, it's because um, I feel like 
we have a responsibility, those of us that aren't going out in the front yeah. lines anymore, we yes. have a responsibility to make sure yes. that we're matching the work that you guys are doing. Yep. So whatever strings we need to pull, uh, speaking with local politicians and other activists and other organizations and making sure you guys have the proper resources, giving you that support, that's, that's, that's our job. In addition to that, um, the mission of the numbers is to carve out this media space for people of color yep. to make sure we have a voice, to make sure we're heard. Yep. And I thank um, X-Ray for partnering with us on this initiative to give you guys a voice. And I hope that uh, we'll have an opportunity to sit down again, For you sure. know, maybe a week or two from now. For sure. Know? And, and we'll, maybe we'll have great news, yeah. you know? We'll maybe, you, you know, we'll be on the other, side of, other side of this. If you told me a, a week ago Minnesota would vote to abolish the police station, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. We're seeing changes. I also, like, last thing I want to say in terms of, like, what black folk are doing, I think it's really important that we don't police what black people are doing. Um, like the other radical thing, the other radical side of this is being able to rest black people. Um, that is radical, especially like while all of this is happening, like literally getting good sleep is radical. Um, that is a form of activism, laughing with your friends, even if it's only for like five minutes, you did the radical thing because all of those things feel very impossible right now. Um, dancing feels very impossible right now. Joy feels like inaccessible right now and so operating in that is literally enough more than enough so i think it's really important that also like you know we we kind of reclaim what the streets mean to us especially to black people that we're all in the streets in our own way so yeah like definitely get more than enough rest <laughs> like that is a radical thing um call out of work like don't go to the zoom meeting if your body is not feeling it right. give your body full access and full reign um and that is that is liberation like that is what the fight is about it's all about black people being as free as vast as as we possibly can so yeah don't let nobody peace police you and say that Yo, you need to be on the streets. Like, what are you doing? You don't love your people. Like, no. <laughs> um, and if you're not posting every day, you don't have to be on those inter internet streets every single day. Like, no. If you're like, I'm taking a day off and I'm going camping and I don't know. Like, that's what I'm going to do. That's what you're going to do. And that is, like, still activism. That is still radical. That is, like, free blackness. And that's what this is all about. Excellent. Thank you both for your time. Word. Thank you. Stay safe. Y'all too. Thanks to Paige and to Ambush for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. And again, story ideas and organizations who need shouts out, send us an email at local at xray.fm. Let's stick together while we're apart, and thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.